hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Answer Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chits, but. <laughs> oh, Hello and welcome to episode 342 of the Stupid Cancer Show. The voice of young adult cancer, I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 19-year young adult cancer survivor, broadcasting right now from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest support network for young adults affected by cancer worldwide online at stupidcancer.org. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time entertaining listeners. Never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. This episode, we're talking with Dr. Kevin Murphy, professor from UCSD, vice chairman of the Department of Radiation Medicine and Applied Sciences, about his research in the use of, get this, transcranial magnetic therapy. I think that's fancy for chemo brain. Survivor Spotlight on the one and only Christabel Chung. And with that, my fabulous team here, Kenny Kane, Allie Ward, Mallory Rivera, and Sean Shapiro. Allie Ward up from Baltimore. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. Thank you. We love when you're here on Mondays. I know. It's so nice. Like once a month. Like on, you know, on, once on a, a month. Once yeah. a month. That's nice. How, how is everything going? Crazy. Why? Is there something happening that I should know about? In 24 days. As she raises her iPhone to me on the on the radio. Um, 24 days. CancerCon. People will be in uh, 600. People will be descending in Denver. It's crazy. Uh, it's pretty exciting. Yeah. So all good stuff. Just a lot of like little details. This is your 12, 13, 14th fourth one of these. Yes. And it keeps getting bigger and better. Bigger. <laughs> well, be- bigger at least, bigger. And we can't promise better. Better too. Oh, it will be much better. Let's lower our standards all the way down. We'll start from zero on the volume knob. Anyway. It'll be good. Yes. Hello, Kenny. Hello, Matthew. You were sick, right? How are you feeling? Um, yeah. I had some sort of thing that got passed along to me from someone else. Not my daughter, thankfully. No. Okay. Because that would just be awful. <laughs> Man, she's got nothing. Well, but... Although I do probably get stuff from her via you. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely incubus of transmission, for sure. But you're good? You, I'm, I'm doing you're great. You're set for the road trip? Uh, Yeah. The, oh, is it happening soon? I think it's like n- tomorrow? 
When are, when are you leaving? It's a week from Wednesday. Jeez, wow. <laughs> 14 days, 14 cities. Stupidcancerroadtrip.org. Yeah. Fancy stuff. 19 days in total, if you add it to... Denver? Yeah. Crazy. Hi, Mallory. Hello. <laughs> you had a fascinating week with me. I did. I had a very fun week. It was well, pretty exciting. You got to meet all sorts of celebrita. I did. It was good times. I saw Katie Couric in real life more than I've ever watched her on TV <laughs> in one fabulous event. Yes. Yes. Good times. And who, what other celebrities did you meet this week? Oh, you know, I took a selfie with Ken Burns. Is that uh, all? Just yeah. Ken Burns? <laughs> Just Ken Burns. Yeah. You know, no one big. But it was it, it was a fun week, to say the least. Did you meet what's-his-face? Um, magician guy, whatever. David Blaine? I did not, but to be honest, I'm kind of relieved because he creeps me out a just a creepy. little bit. Yeah. Just a little. So I'm, I'm okay with that. That's okay. one I'm okay with missing. But it's the best perks of the job where you get to meet random celebrities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like me. you awesome. Star fuckers. We just, that's it. Something like uh, being able to send a text to your uh, sibling who happens to be a film person. Oh, hey, um, I'm hanging out with Ken Burns right now. Just vegging with Ken. Yeah. All right. And hello, Sean Shapiro. Hello. How you doing? Doing swell. We had a couple of milestones this week. That's right. What's we, going on, bro? We we crossed 85,000 raised for the VIP club, which is super exciting. That is incredibly exciting. I think we're going to hit 100K pretty soon. You think so? I predict it. Wow. It's going to happen. Well, because Sean says so, it must be done. Yes. So all you I'm guys okay out with there, that. <laughs> I ain't got a problem with it either. Um, and we raised uh, so far... We just assembled a New York City Marathon team. The race is not until November, but we just raised nine thousand dollars already. So already, already, for something like a couple what, weeks, seven months from now. Yeah, and wow. it's like a couple weeks in. That's amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. So I had some quick stuff. I spoke this week uh, for the National Bureau of Medical Examiners, which was kind of weird because those are the people that you'd think might do autopsies, but they're actually a governing body of MDs and PhDs who oversee outcomes in the medical research and medical patient fields, which I did not know about. The thing is they never talk to patients because they're a peer-to-peer organization that oversees themselves. They're like, why am I here? What do you want me to do while I'm talking to medical examiners? And they basically said, well, we're patients too. Just tell us how much we hate our doctors and we'll all connect on the same page, which is what I did. So my opening line was, how many of you have doctors just like you that you hate because they're bad doctors? And they all raise their hands. And it just goes to show that we're all we're on the same boat together. But it was really interesting to hear more about how they're trying to understand patients as sort of this, you know, they, they, they talked about like Rate My Doctor and ZocDoc and how they're kind of destroying reputations because one secretary has a bad day and it, that, that, that patient just like destroys the physician's office because that secretary had a bad day it's kind of like when you know you get you know a rude uh cashier at burger king and you just yelp it to death so anyway it's really fascinating um to uh to have have that experience talking to those people um but i big announcement uh, obviously the show is taped but emperor of O'Malley's is going to be on pbs uh right after this taping here monday but uh I believe it's going to be on the PBS app, in case you miss it. It's six hours, three yes. nights, two hours each. Correct, Mel? It is three nights, two hours each night. And, or if you're going to do it like I'm going to do it, watch it on the app in one six-hour sitting. <laughs> With lots of no- nachos and pizza rolls and schnapps and whatever. 
Uh, based on the the preview, I, I think I'm going to keep it a little healthier. All when right. I- <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, because that was it. You, you, you had met Katie Couric at, uh, we went to a screening yes. of Emperor of All Maladies. And we watched a one hour preview of what, like four 20 minute. 10-minute snip, snippets or something, 15-minute snippets? Uh, it seemed to be about 20 minutes um, from each episode um, right. because there's they sort of break it down like they right. do in the book, the past, the present, and the future, um, which is really interesting. It was fascinating. Yes. And even just for a glimpse of the preview, blown away. Very emotional, but very fact-driven. And um, uh, Barrett Goodman, is that the, the director? Yes, and, that is the director. And Ken Burns addressed the crowd prior to... What I found interesting was you know, they, they really stressed that they tried to de-intellectualize it a little bit, like make it more layperson speak. I thought they did a really good job. Yeah, I definitely think they re- did a really good job of breaking things down and making it a little bit easier to understand, but also giving, at least from what we saw, a very comprehensive history. Right. Um, which is, if you're nerdy like I am, is really exciting. No, it was really fascinating stuff. So, again, Emperor of Homalities on PBS – it's been two and a half years in the making. Yeah. Fascinating. Anyway, and a special shout out to Click Health for inviting me to speak at their Muse event in New York City this week. Um, again, strange, interesting, exciting, fascinating, uh, amazing crowd energy at, um, who was it? Uh, Kenneth Cole's garage, apparently. <laughs> yes. It happened to be very, very close to Kenneth Cole's headquarters, yes. which is uh, always fun. But that was an eclectic event for sure. Yeah, <laughs> eclectic is a very good description. Well, there was for a it. mentalist. There was that amazing piano guy um, that kind of percussively killed the piano while he was playing it without sitting. Without sitting, um, there was uh, Adrian from the Boston Marathon lost her leg. Professional dancer, her husband's a military vet. Yes. Um, there was the chief Google Health guy spoke. Yes. Also, uh, Jack. I'm going to butcher his last name. I believe it's Andron. Andraka. Yes. The 13-year-old that invented the uh, research for pancreatic cancer and now is 18. Has published a book. And he speaks faster than I do. He's very hard to understand. Yes. It's almost like he's too smart for his own good. Very much too smart for his own good, but but a genius nonetheless. Anyway, special shout out to Click. I will also be speaking, as far as I heard today, at their Philadelphia Muse event in April because I'm not busy enough in April because of other... Things happening. 24 days. <laughs> anyway, we have a special drop-in guest, um, Amy Lee from Dance for Healing, who I know actually through uh, uh, an amazing friend named Wen Dombrowski, who I knew through the, the social channels. You've been nodding your head. has been saying ZocDoc and Jack and Vrika. Welcome briefly. You're going to be on the show in a full segment later this season, but I'm glad you're – what are you in town for? Oh, I'm here for the Rock Health XX uh, in Health Women Retreat, and then afterwards I'm going to go to Boston to speak at the – Health Experience Refractor Conference on a panel called Innovation and Cancer Care. So you're an under, underachiever, basically. <laughs> so you know Haley, is she in town for this Rock Hill thing? Yes. She is. Okay. Yeah. And who's coming to that? Oh, it's just tons of people. Like there's uh, basically they bring um, uh, women who's in leadership positions in healthcare uh, and with entrepreneurs like myself. Um, and I think they, I assuming they're trying to encourage mentorships. Uh, but I will find out tomorrow. This is my first one. Okay. Well, good luck tomorrow. And then up to Boston for the other conference. Exciting stuff. Well, we'll get we'll get to you on. You. I want you to chime in on on tonight's show because it's fascinating. Sure. So, uh, all right, Kenny. Let's uh, let's kick off the show. 
In the spotlight tonight, Christabel Chung, a doctoral student at UCLA researching disparities in young adult cancer survivorship. She is also a two-time survivor of Hodgkin's. She blogs about it at jadegangster.com. We're going to welcome Christabel Chung. Hello there. Uh, Dr. C in the house. How's that? Is that better? <laughs> oh, that's like going to make me nervous. I'm uh, like, seems so far away. No, there's no pressure calling from a land where the weather is actually nice. But you have no water, so it all works out. Yes. Yeah, it's awesome. So we met, I believe, at the SEO conference last fall. Um, it was at the Critical Mass. Critical Mass Conference, that's right. In Denver, right. Right, right. C- Critical Mass being the annual meeting of a bunch of leadership people um, who are kind of smart around young adult cancer advocacy, progress, and science. Right. Which is right. exciting. Yeah, it was really enlightening. So you were there on behalf of UCLA. Um, well, actually, I worked for uh, Dr. Brad Zebrak at the University of Michigan. I was actually there... Um, working on a collaborative project between UCLA and the University of Michigan with him. So um, I was actually his summer doctoral fellow interning at the uh, University of Michigan School of Social Work this past summer. So I've continued that working relationship with him. And he's probably the leading researcher in terms of all things young adult um, cancer in terms of psychosocial outcomes and and what happens to people after a diagnosis. Right. Pretty cool. And despite his growing age, and I refer to him as the godfather of psychosocial <laughs> research, he would refer to, prefer to be called the creepy uncle of young adult cancer research. So I will stick with that in honor of Blue, just because I adore him. Um, but that's exciting. Um, what what I find really, and I want I want to focus on this because you know we talk okay. about we talk about the niche market of young adults with cancer, but then we get to the young adult survivors who become doctors researching young adult cancer it's like the Uh vortex of the mirror looking into the mirror and the universe explodes Uh i want you to just tell us your story how old were you what happened six months before how'd you get diagnosed what was that process like and let's get into this okay so i was 32 when i got the diagnosis i was probably i probably actually had cancer for a year before but i hear that that's kind of typical for young adults we tend to wait until the last minute um, to find out that we had cancer. So I basically, um, well, the way that I found out is kind of like, it's still, when I tell the story, is like, that's probably the most traumatic and the most, um, and I, I've heard this from other survivors. I found out about my um, cancer diagnosis on my cell phone. I was standing in line at the post office um, trying to ship something off to work, and um, a doctor that I'd never met, met before actually just called me up on my cell phone and said, are you, you in a place where you can talk? And I thought, Sure, why not? You know, I've never, you know, I was 32, really healthy, had been an endurance athlete before. I was actually a marathon coach, and, like, nothing bad had ever happened. I had no idea why a doctor would ever even call someone on their cell phone, right? And so, um, basically, he was filling in for the doctor that I'd seen the day before, and he said, um, and I'd seen that doctor because I thought that I had a nagging flu bug, and I thought that's what was happening all year long, that I just had this, you know, walking pneumonia, mono, I don't know, other kinds of I don't know what other kinds of kissing diseases people my age can get. Right. But so that it, I thought it was something, you know, like not that big a deal. And he basically said, you have a type of cancer called lymphoma. And then in the middle of his spiel thereafter, I mean, it was just like it turned to like Charlie Brown's teacher. He could have been saying anything. <laughs> and then the call dropped, right? The call dropped. And then I was just like, I still have a complete blackout about how I got home that day or what happened afterwards but i think the thing that you know really struck a chord with me is that i mean cancer is horrible on its own merit right but to find out the news 
that way was pretty dangerous. And in talking to other young people afterwards, it's not, I'm not alone in getting my diagnosis over the phone like that, you know? So it's, um, I think that that's what was kind of startling about finding that out is that, you know, you're kind of, you feel like, you know, you're a healthy young person and you're kind of impervious to, you know, things like cancer. I even, you know, um, was so ignorant about medical terminology that when he said we found something something significant, I didn't know that significant meant bad. Right. And I didn't know that when he said a type of cancer, I, I thought, okay, so a type of cancer is not cancer cancer, right? <laughs> and so, I, you know, like, it was just like so many, because the denial was so big that like all of my, you know, layers, just um, protective layers just like came on and I just couldn't, I couldn't hear what he was trying to say to me. So I think that's what was dangerous. But um, yeah, and at the time um, of that diagnosis, I was um, working uh, in the nonprofit sector um, and really thought that my job was killing me. I didn't really think that anything was, you know. Famous last words. What's that? Famous last words. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I thought like, you know, I'm not really, maybe I need to change jobs or what's going on. But really, I think that um, once it finally sunk in, and um, that, and I even remember when the doctor told me that, you know, we're going to, you need to, um, I had three, like it was like a grapefruit-sized tumor, an orange-sized tumor, maybe a lemon. I don't know. It was kind of like death by fruit salad in my chest. And they were like pushed, they crushed my, um, they were, they collapsed my left lung and were pushing on my heart. So it was basically, if we don't start you on chemo in a matter of days, then you're going to have a heart attack. And so... I just really relied on that particular oncologist. I had no time, I felt, to even get a second opinion, which looking back, I actually did have time, but I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. But um, I think that, um, yeah, everything just moved so quickly, and um, suddenly I was a patient, and I'd never had that experience before. So I think that that's what happened. And um, I really, I think that in terms of um, focusing on cancer survivorship research, it didn't really come until my after my second diagnosis. After my second diagnosis, um, I had stepped down from my job. I was serving as the executive director of a nonprofit startup that was focused on um, aging in place, which is kind of ironic because being a young person that was growing to become, I, I was starting to make a name for myself as a young person who was an expert on aging. And the irony of like, perhaps never getting to age was kind of not that funny, but, um, but it was, yeah. So, so that's sort of what happened. And um, I had to step down from that role and it was really um, to me humiliating and embarrassing because I had told the board of directors that, Hey, I'm ready to leave this organization. I'm a cancer survivor, cancer's in my past and I'm done with it. And, you know, like cancer doesn't, as you know, cancer doesn't wait for you to be done with it or um, it has a mind of its own. And so I got re-diagnosed. Everyone was, you know, really understanding. And um, this is at San Francisco Village in, in San Francisco. And um, my board was great and they were really supportive. Um, and I really, you know, like just, um, I think after that whole experience and particularly because um, I found that cancer resources and the care that I got was so grayed out. It was all focused on older folks. Um, I, every time that I would see a young person on my ward in the hospital or, um, you know, at radiation or something, I would want to, like, jump that person. Like, I just wanted to be like, oh, my God, that's a girl my age. And um, whoever that, that I was with was always like, 
you know, like, calm down, you know, we can go talk to her. But I always tried to seek out and talk to people my age because it was such a rare sighting. And um, I think on top of that, being um, I'm a Chinese-American immigrant and um, came, I have come from an unstable family situation and the way that care is so reliant on people having basically an intact nuclear family um, and sort of makes those assumptions. I really wanted to make a change in terms of just surfacing knowledge about um, the really sort of hard to reach and vulnerable groups that, um, I mean, we don't know how many there are because we're just overlooking them right now. And so I really think that the AYA, the adolescent and young adult movement being so new, we have the opportunity to, I think, lead the medical community and the research community by being a model of, of inclusion of all kinds of diversity, whether it's race, ethnicity, gender, and um, you know sexual orientation. We really, um, and I think that young adults. What's so great about young adults is that we demand inclusion of those things in everything that we do now. So I think that um, it's like a really great time to like get involved and do this work. But it is a little bit. I mean, I do get reactions sometimes from people like, "Oh, wow, it must be." so intense like don't you want to just put cancer behind you why do you want to focus on this work but um to me i guess i'm of the personality i guess some people can compartmentalize it maybe and move on but um i don't know well you can't tell by the way that i'm like speaking at warp speed now but i've lost half of my lung tissue and i get really fatigued really easily and there's a lot of day-to-day things i'm never going to be able to forget that i had cancer um, you know, there's a lot of issues like fertility, um, relationships, things like that, that um, have forever changed me, not to mention that I've had to start a brand new career, um, the financial losses, all of that. So um, the friendship changes. Um, yeah, everything in my life has been touched by it. So I don't think I think it's um, perfect that um, I would go into this area. And I really think that um, folks who've had a personal cancer experience that focus on this work, um, I feel like we have the edge of knowing the right places to look and the right questions to ask. Christabel, if I can stop you right there for a second, I'd like to give you some time to breathe. Um, For for someone with reduced lung capacity, you just spoke for 11 minutes straight, and I'm very impressed. (laughs) I know. I told you. I, like, blow the nurses away. All right. So let's let's do some short questions then. Um. You kind of glazed over this, and I think it's kind of interesting. You actually had cancer twice. Um, yeah. Can you just briefly tell us a little more about, like, you were out of the clear and you were given this, and, and what? how did that resurface? Um, I was told that I was in remission after first-line treatment, which was six months of chemo, and then the first scan after I finished showed something small. And so... Um, and I was told that there's false positives all the time, and Hodgkin's lymphoma is an awesome cancer to have, and 93% success rate with first-line treatment. So, um, but what ended up happening is we watched the small thing in my chest grow over the course of 19 months, and then at the end of the 19 months, they said, you know, I'm sorry, you weren't in remission all along. Um, that you know that the cancer had actually progressed. So that was kind of a bummer. So at the time. I guess, did you have insurance? Were you living alone? Were you uh, w- with with a, a partner? Yeah. yeah, so basically I had insurance um, at the beginning. Uh, I had pretty good insurance through my employer. 
And um, when I had my first diagnosis, I was living with my boyfriend at the time. And he was great. He, I think he did everything that he could, you know, and, um, and he was really there for me. And then, but after I got the second diagnosis, um, I uh, ended my relationship with him. And um, yeah, I just couldn't do that to him again. And so I, the, the second round, I, I did it um, living alone. And that speaks to a lot of the, you know, I mean, relationships are difficult when you're well, um, and they're right. diff- and when you're younger, it's you, you know, it's a different time of your life. You know, you are the embodiment of the young adult cancer patient survivor. What I, I truly find most fascinating is what I alluded to before, is that the niche market of the niche market are young adults who, who have had cancer, who go into young adult advocacy and then go into medical doctoral research on behalf of the exact same patient you were. Can you talk us right. through your mindset in pivoting down that new path? Yeah, I think that, you know, um, like I said, I felt really, really isolated. And I think that I, I, I kept telling myself that I can't be the only one that's having this experience. But why is it that I keep sort of reading the same profile of what a young adult cancer patient should be? It's I, I kind of felt like it was like we um, tend to uphold this image of someone who's bald, you know, super uh, ready to be called a survivor even, Um, someone who's got family that's stepping in to help them, someone who's got resources, who has like a bucket list to do, and who has friends that come around them, um, and is ready to fight this disease. And we keep telling that story, but I have yet to really meet that person in person. And so I really wanted to do something about that. And um, I think it, it made me uncomfortable enough that I wanted to devote my career to it. So what I like about your blog, your blog is jadegangster.com. I want to hear the origin story, but your voice is just so endemic of what I hear and see and we witness every single day. It's it's a little obnoxious and respectful and disruptive and and, and cynically amazing and, and in your face. You have a, mm. you, I mean, you turned 39 uh, earlier this year, you're post was suck it cancer you know you you the your longest relationship you had with a man was your oncologist with dr kaplan yeah you know i mean you really this is the voice and and i think it's extraordinary and and you, you're probably just being you you don't realize that and and that's what's really quite exceptional so yeah what is do, dare i ask if you don't get like you know uh, arrested by the fbi or something what is jade gangster so Dave Gangster is my alter ego, and I decided to create an alter ego because I didn't have, well, is this okay because I'm a girl to say I didn't have the balls to write at the beginning? I just said it. It so is okay. Really have, it is officially okay. <laughs> I didn't have the courage to really write what was in my heart and in my mind at the beginning, and so I, I needed to create an alter ego, um, and I used to blog by just thumbing messages from my phone to a closed network of people that were in my circle of care. And then people were moved by what I wrote and said, you know, you should really share this with other survivors. So that's why I made it public. But Jade is very much inspired by, um, Jade is a gemstone that's really historically, um, you know, treasured in in Chinese culture historically. So that's very much part of my legacy as um, a Chinese American. And then Gangster really is the idea that the young adult cancer tag is not something that I chose. But whether I like it or not, 
I've been tagged, and the only way out of this gang is if I die. So that's really why I came up with it, and it's been a really good creative outlet, although, like, I really blurred. I, I mean, I really don't try to hide myself anymore, but it was good to have that cover at the beginning. I completely understand, and, and that makes a lot of sense. I went through something very similar when I was going through it. I just didn't feel like myself, and I wanted to escape from the sickness that I was, and it, it was very empowering to do so, so kudos on that. And, um, you know, uh, I, I so let's get into the actual research that you do right now, and we have about five minutes mm-hmm. left. So what what is the specific research you're conducting now for young adults? Sure. So um, I'm doing a study with Dr. Brad Zebrak uh, at the University of Michigan, and we're focusing on what adolescent and young adults want from Internet-based resources. And um, we've been able to include a bunch of really awesome young folks in our study who are, are um, stupid cancer advocates and uh, really um, active in terms of advocacy for young adults. Um, but the main thing is that what we're trying to get at is their um, yeah, for example, your awesome peer-to-peer app that's come out. There's a lot of um, technology that comes out for young adults, and um, especially right now. And we want to know what it is exactly that's useful to them. Because anecdotally, we've heard all different kinds of things, that some people just prefer to carry their notebook with everything um, in it always, and they prefer to have pieces of paper. Other people love the technology. They love the ability to connect with other young people, um, uh, right in real time and um, get questions answered, have their anxiety alleviated. Um, and so I think that uh, what we're trying to get at is what it, what is the, the useful um, utilization of that type of technology um, and where can we um, optimize technology so that young adults can get the resources that they need that are specific to, to them. Since, and I think technology is going to be really important because um, oftentimes young adults are not treated in big research um, hospitals where they have access to a young adult program, for example. Um, they might be treated in a community setting. Well, that, that is true. And again, I just be mindful we have, we have three minutes left. Most cancer patients are treated in community centers, which have been geared for the 94% of people that get cancer over 55. So I right. can only imagine it's even that much more isolating when you're not at UCLA or Dana-Farber or Mayo Clinic. It, it, how, how are you reconciling exactly. that in your research? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think um, we're, we're hoping to um, reach the most vulnerable and the most hard to reach in that way. Interesting. All right. So in terms of being the patient turned doctor researcher for your own demographic, what is your message to, I mean, obviously it's not, hey, become a doctor. You, you can't really say that to the average person. But what's, what's your message? What's your takeaway uh, in, as far as if someone asks you, you know, how'd you get through it? What got you through it? I'm sorry, what was the question again? What, if someone asks it? you, like, what's your message to other young adult patients, survivors, about how you got through it, your, the choices you've made? Oh, I'd definitely say to trust your gut. I think there were a lot of choices that I made in the moment that were scary to me. The, the, the choice was too scary, so I relied on someone else because I thought, oh, well, he's a big to-do doctor, that's blah, blah, blah. And I got scared into it, and I later had regrets about it. And I, What I realized about that is that um, we need to get all the information that we can from everyone that can give it to us and then make our own decision because it's, it's our, our lives 
and we're we're the ones that have to live with the consequences of it every day. So I think that would be my advice is to trust your gut. And yeah, I think that would be it. It's a great message. Are you a doctor yet? No, I'm still a couple years away. <laughs> All right, pre pre so pre doctorate. Seems like a finish line that's walking backwards away from me. Now, but it's exciting. I'm, we're proud of you. You you are again. You, you you are a good representative of our, of our movement. Uh, Christabel Chung, doctoral student at UCLA, researching disparities in young adult cancer survivorship. Two time survivor of Hodgkin's disease. Blogging at jadegangster.com. Christabel, thanks so much, and we'll see you soon. Thanks so much, Matthew. Take care. All right, bye bye. Have a great day. All right, Kenny, let's set up the news here. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events happening nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. Well, we have a Stupid Cancer meetup in Nashville, Tennessee, and then John Sabian and I head out on the road to... Boston, New York, D.C., Durham, Atlanta, Birmingham, New Orleans, Austin, Dallas, Tempe, San Diego, and finally the O.C. before we get to that thing in Denver, <laughs> CancerCon. Yeah. If you'd like to learn more about hosting your own meetup, visit stupidcancer.org forward slash meetup. And don't forget to RSVP for the road trip meetups at stupidcancerroadtrip.org. That's right, Matthew. Cancer is lonely. We've got a cure for that. Yes, we're talking about Instapeer, our free mobile app that brings instant Anonymous one-to-one peer support for anyone affected by young adult cancer. Visit instapeer.org. It'll be in the app store any day now. All right, we've launched a news feed aggregator on Pinterest for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org forward slash feed. Cancer is expensive. We're proud to announce cancermademebroke.com, a national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser. You didn't ask to get sick, and your community wants to help. Visit CancerMadeMeBroke.com to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. It's always a good time to stock up on your stupid cancer gear. Visit StupidCancer.org anytime. Stay nice and cool under the Stupid Cancer t-shirt. Grab a skateboard. Don't forget about Flip, the cancer bird. whole bunch of stuff, Matthew. That's StupidCancerStore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And that, that is your Stupid, stupid Cancer, cancer News. news. All right, in the main segment on this broadcast, Dr. Kevin Murphy, professor from UCSD, vice chairman of the Department of Radiation Medicine and Applied Sciences, also serves as the director of the Pediatric Radiation Oncology Program for UCSD and Raddy Children's Hospital. His research interest lies in the use of, get this folks, transcranial magnetic therapy in an attempt to restore, again, neural synchrony. Please welcome to the show the one and only Dr. Kevin Murphy. Kevin. No, it's I, I'm I, I just meeting you. I was so fast that we had like this incredible brain mind meld thing happening when we first got connected. And your research is fascinating um, because it pretty much centers around something we all have in common: a brain. Yeah, it sounds like we're we're thinking about this now not so much as a disease uh, specific problem, but just as having a a brain, like you say, and that many of these disorders, whether it's autism or it's uh, chemotherapy brain problems have some of the same uh, pathophysiology. There's a slowing of the brain as the brain's traumatized, and that slowing creates 
a disturbance in behavior. So let's get into the origin story. What brought you into medicine in the first place? I'm sorry, say again, I missed that. What brought you into medicine in the first place? Well, I can tell you, I was uh, an engineer in the in the uh, Navy back in the um, 80s from the first Gulf War and was working as a officer in charge of medical personnel, meeting airlift off the uh, aircraft carrier. <laughs> and got uh, interested in seeing and taking care of patients that were, uh, you know, in harm's way. So that got me started, and then I got into... Um, medical school and focused in the, the the brain area eventually. Did you see a lot of like neurophysiology deficits from, from the military world? I can imagine like, you know, George Collin has this really funny bit about how it was a shell shock, then battle fatigue, then post-traumatic stress. These are all mental health issues, correct? Yeah, and I, I would tell you that, you know, whether it's physical trauma or psychological trauma or both, um, that coupled with poor sleep can take even a, a strong strong-willed person who's who's squared away, so to speak, and create um, some disturbances. And again, it's not even an um, overt trauma that has to be the problem. We can have just a series of slow, uh, decaying events where the brain's traumatized and it starts to slow, and that uh, starts to create a beat or a, a brain beat that's too slow for appropriate behavior. So how does one make the leap from neuros, uh, neuro, neuro, uh, neurophysiology thank you, to radiation oncology? Well, so my background was in neurophysiology, and that's really the study of brain frequency and brain physiology. And then I worked as a, a neuro-oncologist, which is my primary passion, and I managed the pediatric program, as you mentioned. And that led toward doing radiosurgery, which is a high-focused radiation dose to brain for uh, treating tumors and also giving um, low-dose radiation to, to patients. And that leads us to seeing side effects of our therapy, which is... Um, trauma of the brain, which is slowing of the frequency. So my research is focused on how do I now fix the deficits I might be creating by treating this poor um, you know, patient's tumor and having maybe a good effect on the tumor, but also a negative effect on the actual normal brain. I was a uh, clinical trial candidate for stereotactic radiosurgery back in 1996. Wow. So everyone is, you're all welcome for my, my data uh, that I'm still here, and it was exciting, but the way they explained it to me as a layperson, you know, patients have no idea what this means on like the third day of you're getting treated. Yeah. Um, and, and just for the people out there, uh, it basically, it, the radiation only actually like hits a part of the brain specifically based on the structure of the brain and does as little harm as possible to, to surrounding tissue. Is that correct? Yeah. So these days we have very high energy modern-day linear accelerators, and these give a very high focus dose to a very small target, and that can create ablative uh, energy at that site and kill tumors, or do functional uh, neurosurgery, we call this. Um, but there still is enough dose to adjacent normal areas that there could be some collateral damage, and it's that collateral damage where it doesn't kill the neuron, but it just damages that neuron that creates a slowing. and it's really going to be shown, I think, over and over here in the future that the slowing of these frequencies and the dyssynchrony it causes is going to be correlating with, uh, with behavior changes. Right, and of because course, these, th sorry, go ahead. These, wave, these wavelengths need to, need to talk to each other at the same speed, and if you've changed even a small amount of speed of frequency, it changes the behavior in the way that an orchestra, if you didn't have each one of the parts of the, of the of members playing the exact same speed, it would sound terrible, and the brain's the same way. Across the brain, we have uh, like an orchestra playing, and even if one small part is out of sync, 
it sounds terrible it creates anxiety and frustration and uh, there's a lack there's a lack of um, information flow uh, which creates loss of, of memory or uh, poor uh, word finding or things like this so it's really um, it's really fascinating how, how, how important coherence is which is each frequency being aligned from front to back right and it also speaks to how much progress we've made about the quality of life of people that need this type of procedure or these treatments because again back in the 90s like I was in peds so they had a, like an awareness of like you might have issues after this, but if I were treated in, in like adult oncology with this, they would like oh good luck have fun goodbye like and and you know I was I was grateful that oh by the way you might like go crazy in ten years because your brain chemistry is going to melt and you might have a stroke and you might have you know this, this, this I have um radiation vasculopathy which oh congratulations you have this now so this this idea of of ensuring you know the the, the truth of do no harm but try to help you is really the direction this medicine is taking, correct? Yeah, and I think for a long time with, with very devastating diseases, we were just trying our best to stop the process and, and cure the patient. And it's definitely moved toward a let's cure a patient and also keep their function and their quality of life as, as good as possible. I think this, is goes, this goes right down toward my research, looking at ways to take any patient, whether it's chemo or radiation or just surgery, and take them where they are and put them back on to a synchronous uh, frequency. And that's what the the transcranial therapy does. So is there, I would, I mean, this is probably a very obvious question, but because you are a member of the children's oncology group and you work in peds, there is, uh, and when you're working with an immature brain that's prepubescent and, and just developing, how, how does COG build those standards around the toxicities and the damage versus the, the cure rates? Where, where is that at right now? Well, I would tell you that the, if you look at all the pediatric cancers, about half of those are brain tumors. So of the 10,000 cases per year, in the U.S., about half are leukemic, half are, are brain tumors or other solid tumors. In that group of um, uh, brain tumors and solid tumors, most will get surgery if they're brain tumors and go on to get some form of radiation therapy or chemo. Um, I would say that as the younger age groups um, go through this process between the ages of three to seven, that group has a lot more disturbance of potential permanent uh, neurocognitive dysfunction than the older group above seven. There's not really an, an exact cutoff, but the brain's developing up till about five or six or seven. And we, we like to get radiation therapy delayed if we can beyond that age of, of six or seven. Um, there are times, unfortunately, where we treat three and four-year-olds, and we see it. We see effects in their neurocognitive function um, down the road. It might still be the cure to regimen, unfortunately. And so a lot of my research is focused on how do I take either those kids or the older kids and, and bring them back to the highest uh, function level I can. Right. So does that mean a lot of this is reversible? Yeah, I think organic disease or if there's a missing um, region that's been removed by surgery, there's a deficit. And what's interesting is the brain's got lots of ability to um, duplicate its efforts and create redundancies. And even areas of the brain that are only going to be responsible, we think, for left-sided function, for example, a right hemispheric region, you can find that there's also some uh, ability to, to restore function in areas where that part of the brain looks completely dead. An example might be I have a stroke patient who I treated who the, the, the middle cerebral artery had caused a large infarct and was having trouble with his right arm. This is a left-sided infarct. And we treated right on top of that infarct and created increased movement of his right hand. And the only way you can do that is that some of those neurons aren't dead. That You've got a large area of death from infarction, but you've got some ischemic areas that haven't yet died, but that are, are, are too slow a speed. And so we're bringing those neurons back to speed and probably getting some function back. 
So in terms of the, uh, are these represent like some of the more novel you, techniques that you're, you're pioneering through your research? I would say that the use of TMS or transcranial therapy is not, not new. The ability to take someone's um, quantitative EEG and use that as a directed uh, therapy is what is new and picking out an exact frequency. And that's what magnetic resonance therapy does. We take an EEG of a patient, I can see their deficit and look at their brain front to back and see where they're not lined up in sync. And I can, go, I can use this paddle and place it over the area that I, I believe needs the most help and give it its frequency back. And that frequency is very, very specific to the patient. Uh, what have you found to be the most fascinating uh, discoveries over the past few years? Well, in this in this area, yes. And, and, well, I would say I, I'm surprised at, at the ability to take some kids with what I think is permanent injury, like a CP kid who's had palsy since he was two or three, and find that we can get any benefit in areas where they've had a permanent, we think, deficit. An example might be again like a person who's got a clawed fist from a stroke that happened when he was three or four who now I can actually get that patient to open their hand. And that, that didn't make sense to me. It still doesn't. And when I tell my colleagues, right. I'm crazy. But there must be some collateral region that is able to be restored by stimulation in that area that we're seeing restoration of. The other thing I would say is kids with autism, we also have a slowing in the frontal cortex, which many thought was, was permanent. And we can also move those frequencies up and wake up kids who had been autistic and not remove their autism entirely, but actually bring them more, more into our world, and that's been a very rewarding thing. So, so how does that actually work? Then, you're, are you you changing the DNA, or are you moving the? How is the biology actually changing in the brain? Well, I would tell you that there's there's surely genes that are being activated, and and that has to be studied. I think what's happening, if you look at your heartbeat and your brain, it also beats and it's got a certain number of times per second that it talks to its neighbors. And that's that frequency we talk about, a cycle per second. And what we're doing really is just finding the awake alert frequencies and pushing these neurons back to that frequency, an awake alert frequency, and making them all like march in unison. And, and really the best example I can make for you is that it's like having these radio stations that we dial in each station to the exact same frequency, and it becomes nice and harmonic. And that would just be, it's a, it's a complicated process at the organic level, but from the pure physics level, it's very simple. It's, it's putting uh, frequencies back aligned um, and back in sync. It's, it's just fascinating, even just like science fiction to even talk about it, but you're actually proving a lot of these models here. Um, so so we mentioned at the, at the top of the show, um, after this broadcast uh, is produced and put out to the world, the... Um, six-hour miniseries Cancer by Ken Burns is going to be on PBS this week. And it tracks the past, present, and future of cancer history, research, whatnot. But they never really talk about the brain. And is that because it's just such a a sacred, different organ that we quite don't understand? Well, I think there is this, this sort of enigma thing that the brain has where you know, we, we're, we're puzzled. It's probably the last frontier in, in medicine as we talk about. Um, I, that's my passion. I love it. It does surprise me. Uh, in, the, in the military, for example, I had to arch my feet so I could get like into the military. I had flat feet mm-hmm. back in the 80s. But we don't even look at a guy's brain and see whether they are, you know, uh, synchronous and have certain capabilities or certain problems. For example, 
we can almost nearly predict PTSD in patients before they go into, into combat by looking at their brain frequencies. Or I, I can predict their propensity to get PTSD. And so we're, we're in the process now of making this EEG more of a diagnostic and predictive test. And historically, that was blasphemy in, in, in the neuroscience world, that EEGs could do that. But I think we're getting, to, getting into a world where personality almost and propensities and strengths can be looked at on a purely physical level based on how well your brain synchronized. There was an NPR uh, uh, show, one of the segments, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to it, and I'm going to totally bastardize it in some capacity, but the gist of it was that there's a computer now that can look at your face and tell you whether you're depressed or not. And it came through a series of facial cognitive recognition social experiments with people that were and weren't depressed, and when they looked at other sort of um, uh, asexual faces, they, they say, you know, um, what do they call them? Like just general faces that have no like perceived male or female. Um, they were able to construe how a brain chem- how the brain fires different things to determine that. And they fed into like a computer and there it's kind of creepy to say you, a computer could look at your face and tell you there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Well, there, there are these class solutions that are being created by computers that, if I can correlate someone's symptoms with 10,000 or 20,000 EEGs, I can start to make a, make a pattern recognition out of, out of the pure um, physics of the brain. And that's what we're talking about. If we look at these patterns, let's call them, over and over again, and continually have a nice database of correlated symptoms, you start to be able to use this then a physical database as, as a, uh, a discovery point where you can make decisions about persons who might need, um, you know, um, intervention or therapy or, or, or further care. Um, I think the same thing's true of concussion. We'll probably have a very good um, EEG for concussion that tells us that that person should be pulled out of that sport right now or that person has a, a real head trauma not a, and not just a small injury. So it's really an exciting world. I, I, I love this for that reason. It's got a lot of um, benefit that, that affects us all. Is there any role in your research now or down the road for epigenetic study or sequencing? I'd like to take patients before stimulation and after and just look at their, their possible gene expression. So I do, I do think there has to be a change. If a neuron is beating four times a second, and I make it beat ten times a second, and it stays at ten times, it has to change its, its genotypic expression. So I'd like to see that and maybe study um, you know what, what's being turned on when, when I treat these patients, and what's being turned off, maybe. So and, you, uh, that's, that's a fascinating area. I mean, you just kind of casually glanced over that sentence. You took a neuron that normally beats at four seconds, and you made a ten. How does that actually happen? Well, neurons are a couple, so they're in series and parallel. Meaning, if um, I beat at a certain speed, my neighbor starts to beat with me, and then their neighbor starts to beat with them, and then they also in series um, from one neuron to the next. They, as they change in frequency, they start to change and in in, in become synchronized at the same frequency. So we call that being coupled. And so if I repetitively tell that neuron, you're not beating fast enough. I want you beating at this frequency. And I give that magnetic pulse and make that neuron beat at my frequency. Over time, in a sense, the neuron learns. And that's the plasticity of the neuron, that we can make those synapses and make those connections not only more durable, but make the frequency that with which they interact more stable. So, so if this is children, what has to happen in their environment for this to be 
productive and functional with good outcomes. I mean, obviously, they go home, you know, and their parents take over, or they go to school and things change. What what influences positively or negatively your therapies? Well, I tell you, I think for it depends on on the disorder. For autism, for example, they still need behavioral therapy and occupational therapy and physical therapy. But when they have those therapies, they're going to be able to respond to them better. So the way I, I explain this to parents is that we're going to make the brain and put it in a position where it can be more receptive to do the things that you need to do that the current occupational therapists and so on are doing. If I spend all day long in those same settings of EBA and occupational health, but I don't have a brain that's awake, it's nearly a waste of time. So we need to first wake the brain up, put people in sync, put kids and neurons in a state where they can receive the therapy and then put them through therapy. And so it doesn't obviate the need to go through those, those processes. It just makes those processes more effective. The other thing that we, we require is that patients, and all of our patients, whether I'm treating an eating disorder or treating a chemo brain patient, I want them to get an appropriate amount of sleep. And we ask patients to get light in the morning, which helps set the rhythm for sleep. And I do find that to a person, if they, be, if they uh, follow those rules of getting morning sunlight between 7 and 10 a.m., it'll set their circadian clock, make them sleepy 8 o'clock at night, 9 o'clock at night, they get better sleep, and then the following day the neurons are more able to be moved over to a new frequency. So I, I'm, I know you mentioned, I mean, the statistic is roughly 5,000 children are diagnosed, new diagnoses each year. I would imagine there are some relapses and secondaries every year as well. It's such a small patient group, but is it large enough to really have, you know, uh, sort of cohesive data to put together? Well, um, just to be clear, there's, there's about 10 or, 10 or more thousand total cases. Half of those are leukemic. In those leukemic setting patients, we do very well and we cure them. The majority of the ALL kids get cured, but they get cured at a price. Um, so, yeah, the actual number, it wouldn't be as large as, let's say, breast cancer, where there's 250,000 cases a year. But the, the, the therapy we're talking about is across the board useful in cancer patients, whether they're kids or adults. We did trials in, in chemo brain in women is where we studied this first and found this benefit where it worked in adult patients that had chemotherapy. And because my passion is pediatrics, I want to apply it toward peds. But I think it's a, um, uh, it's a, it's a global message, whether you have uh, you know, chemo from this kind of chemo, whether you're this age or the sex, that if you've had a re- reduction in speed, we can tune you back up and at least maximize your ability to improve your quality of life. So just the term chemo brain itself has become this euphemism that anyone feels like they can use, whether they've had chemotherapy or not. Yeah. Um, it was this kind of debunk, get over yourself kind of thing. But but there's actual science now that th- it, it really does happen, and there's data on how to deal with it and how to mitigate it. Um, what, ha- what has your experience been with, with pa- patients thinking that they're crazy, but then learning that there's actually something clinically wrong with them? Well, the first thing, whether it's the PTSD or the chemo brain patients, which I've spent a lot of time recently treating, that happens when they see it is there's a relief. Not, not many doctors have said, here's why you feel like you feel. It's not your fault. You've lost ambition. You've lost your sense of, of focus. You can't read as well. You know, you're having trouble with your personal relationships. Here's why. And we show them what a synchronized brain looks like, and we show them what their brain looks like. And you can be across the room and not know a lot about science, but recognize a big difference between a well-lined-up brain and one that doesn't have synchrony. 
And so there is this sort of relief that they have that, you know, I, I had a lot of self-anger and doubt and, you know, what happened to me and why have I lost my, my mojo. And here, look at my brain. My brain tells me how I'm behaving. No wonder I feel like this. So that's been, a, I think, a, one of the nice benefits that we can give a patient a, you know, reason. And they can see it. It's very quantitative. What, what, what I'm just visualizing, like, during triage, because we, we tend to call, like, the period of time between when you're diagnosed and when any treatment actually starts the oh shit window. Yeah. And and no one really owns that space except maybe the doctor itself, a nurse, and a caregiver because the patient's just gone out of their mind. So, pun intended, out of their mind. Is there ever going to be an opportunity to gauge the potential of PTSD based on the brain before it's radiated or given chemotherapy? Well, that would be a, a futuristic approach, which I like. We should know where people stand before we insult their brain to know where they're going to be after we're done. And we'll know who's at risk for having, you know, chemo brain or PTSD uh, before we traumatize them. I think we can see it. Um, someone who's not got complete synchrony, who's at risk, we can identify. Um, I, then ideally the intervention is to let's treat these patients before they get that problem. So the first way we're going to do this is take patients with known evidence of chemo brain, for example, or PTSD, and treat them. And they look at their outcome. If we see benefit, then we do. Then we're going to go back and intervene at some point and say, I'm not going to let you get PTSD or chemo brain. I'm going to treat you during the process and not let you get the slowing and the you know, lack of attention span and all these problems that go along with it. So that's probably a, a nice futuristic step to take is to, is it, is to intervene earlier. Well, you're, you're welcome. <laughs> it's a good idea. <laughs> I so, like it. So I got about a minute left. I, I'm really I want to hear like what what are your thoughts on the future of this? I mean, again, if it becomes a pre-intervention strategy, um, where are we going with this? What can we look forward to in the next three four years? Well, in terms of, of our cancer patients, I think um, there is a difference between men and women. Uh, chemo puts women into menopause on top of their chemo brain. In men, there's more of a depression, and we do see changes with, with menopause with a lack of testosterone. So there's all these, these confounding variables and hormonal changes that occur in the same, in the same population. Um, I think we need more knowledge before we, we go through any, any systemic process that we know causes these symptoms to establish a baseline. And I would like to see us get EEGs as part of our regular workup, just like we do an EKG or taking your blood pressure. We should know what your brain's doing and have that online as a marker and then take these successive tests of EEG throughout your course of therapy, and we'll start, we'll start determining what particular therapy causes that problem. Right now, when you have three or four cooks in the kitchen, the surgeon, the medical oncologist, and the radiation oncologist, and the person has chemo brain, everyone's pointing at each other. Well, if it wasn't for your surgery or your chemo. Right. You know, and that's just sort of like um, being tongue-in-cheek, but the point is we don't really know at what point did the insult occur and what dose caused the insult in some cases. So we need a good dose-response curve on, you know, is it this chemo or that, that intrathecal methotrexate or that, or that whole brain treatment? What was the point that really caused this fall-off? And then we can intervene on those cases and be more specific about avoiding those things if we can or, you know, intervening with this kind of therapy to stop the slowing. All right, final question. Are there more yous in this country doing this, or are you on an island somewhere? Well, I, I'm, I'm on an island in terms of using the magnetic resonance approach which is the QEG guided approach. I can't say I'm the only person probably doing that nationwide, but there aren't a, uh, a group of us yet that are thinking that the EEG is this directive. Um, but I, that's going to change because uh, our data is coming out. 
is going to be, I think, revolutionary. Uh, it, and, and, and I think we're going to see some, some traction. Well, if you ever want to break all your research, I'll let you use my brain for some study. Okay. Sounds, sounds good to me. All right. Dr. Kevin Murphy, professor from UCSD, vice chairman of the Department of Radiation Medicine and Applied Sciences, serving as director of the Pediatric Radiation Oncology Program for UCSD and Rowdy Children's Hospital. Dr. Kevin Murphy, thank you so much for coming on the Stupid Cancer Show. Good luck. Thank you for having me. All thank right. You. Bye-bye. I really would break his research. I can't even imagine what's... What, between you and me, Allie, forget it. Apparently, I'm doubly damned because I'm in menopause. And your brain. And I had chemo. Yeah. So, I'm screwed. Yeah. But that idea of, like, changing the magnetic frequency of your neurons, so you're, like, auto-correcting your brain. <laughs> I'm <laughs> seeing, like, the red line. <laughs> it's a red line markup on in Word documents for your brain. Yeah. But really, I mean, like, when I met him at SEO, Lenny's like, you got to talk to this guy. I'm like, why? Because I have chemo brain? Well, that too, but you got to talk to this guy. Well, I listened to his presentation at mm-hmm. SEO, and I was Phenomenal. really interested. Yeah. Phenomenal stuff. Dr. Kevin Murphy. Um, he is online. Just search for Kevin Murphy, MD, at the UCSD.edu. Gr- amazing, amazing work. Um, is that it? We done? I think that's it. Okay. We'll, well see you next time. Uh, and now, our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you got it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. The 342nd episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. We'd like to thank our guests, Christabel Chung and Dr. Kevin Murphy. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing the young adult cancer movement online at stupidcancer.org. If you haven't already, visit stupidcancershow.org and never miss an episode by signing up for free our newsletter and subscribing to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Coming to you from the chemo deck, and on behalf of myself, Kenny Kane, Mallory Rivera, Sean Shapiro, Allie Ward in the house, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next broadcast of The Stupid Cancer Show. Take care, folks.